0: Hello everyone, welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with Anne McClellan about her biography of Dorothy Stopford Price, the Irish doctor and activist whose efforts led to the eradication of the tuberculosis epidemic in Ireland. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Anne, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Okay, well I'm a biomedical scientist specializing in microbiology and surveillance and um, I suppose about eight years ago I decided to do a PhD in the history of medicine. It's something I've always been interested in, and I thought I'd do it part time. But in fact, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from Wellcome Trust and I went full time to University College Dublin for three years. And at that time I was looking at um, the tuberculosis epidemic in Ireland and essentially very much quantitative analysis of what had happened and the effects of vaccines and so on. And um, since then, I have returned to work as a surveillance scientist, part-time in Connolly Hospital in Dublin. And I also teach a semester in the National College of Art and Design, where there are students of um, medical device design, and I do a history and context module for them.
0: Fascinating. And how is it that you came to write a biography of uh, Dorothy Price?
1: Well I came across Dorothy really by accident. I belonged to a group called Women in Technology and Science and we decided to put together um, an edited collection of mini biographies of Irish women scientists and doctors and I was asked to write about four doctors and I hadn't really heard of any of them but it turned out that three of them had had full biographies written about them and one of them, Dorothy Stopford Price, um, had had very little written about her. So when I started rummaging around in the archives I found lots and lots of material and uh, this is kind of what set me on that path and it's a subject as well that's very interesting to me because obviously working in microbiology and looking at what happened with tuberculosis in historical context was really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things you do in the book is you don't just talk about uh, Dorothy Stopford Price's life, but you also talk about the epidemic and what it you know took to basically bring it under control.
1: Exactly, and and when I was looking at Doherty's papers and many of them were just medical and technical papers and so on, I started to come across um, little sort of glimpses into her life. So for instance, although our medical papers are in Trinity College sort of lurking in among them, there were a couple of diaries of Summers that she spent in their family farm and um, things like you know picking fruit and planting vegetables and so on and I started to get all of these sort of insights into Doherty as a woman and that's what sort of he sort of precipitated me going down the road of writing a biography, but I didn't actually sit down to write the biography till I finished my thesis. And in fact, in my thesis, I say that even though I used Dorothy as a lens into the tuberculosis um, epidemic, I eschew the biological approach, uh, the biographical approach, mm-hmm. excuse me.
0: Tell us a bit about Dorothy's background. What was her upbringing like and, and what ultimately led her to investigate a career in medicine?
1: Grand. well, Doherty was um the daughter of Jemma Stockford, who was an accountant, and he came from a family that was had a, a long line of clerics in a Church of Ireland clerics. So his father was an Archdeacon of Mead, and the grandfather was a Bishop of Mead and so on. and then, on the other side of the family, um Constance Kennedy was Dorothy's mother, and her father was a master of the Rotunda Hospital, which is the world's oldest lying in hospital so She came from kind of an upper middle class background. It would have been Church of Ireland ascendancy and Doherty's sister Edie in fact describes them as Anglo-Irish so they were always looking towards England to them London was kind of a natural social and cultural centre and also the fact that governance came from England was to them you know very acceptable and that was that was the norm of life. So I suppose Doherty was born at the very end of the Victorian era and when Queen Victoria died in 1901 Doherty was 11. And herself and her two little sisters, Alice and um, Edie, were put into black mourning dresses. And Edie says she went away and composed an elegy at the death of Queen Victoria. So very much looking towards Britain. And they... As a a sort of an upper-middle-class family, they had servants and they were very careful to engage English-speaking governesses and French-speaking Swiss maids, children's maids, so that the children would be brought up with no trace at all of an Irish accent or brogue. So, uh, you know, it's strange then that the roads that led Dorothy towards nationalism later on because she came from a very staunchly Anglo-Irish family.
0: You mentioned how her accent got her into trouble during the War of Independence about how initially some people wouldn't trust her because she didn't sound Irish enough.
1: That's right, she would have had a cut glass received pronunciation because when she was 12 then, her dad died and the family relocated to London and she went to St Paul's School in London which was a progressive school and she stayed there until, she stayed in England until she was 25 and she came back to Trinity and again Trinity would have been a very Anglo type environment so when she went down to West Cork and basically presented herself as somebody who was going to give first aid classes to the Irish Republican Army and to the Women's Auxiliary Movement coming along, they were sort of thinking. I wonder,
0: you know, <laughs> is
1: this woman actually a spy or some kind of double agent or something?
0: Was she initially uh, interested in academically? Because in, uh, from what you write, medicine was not her first goal. Career uh, in medicine was not her first goal.
1: No, I mean, it seems that she did very well in school and higher education would have been something that she would have aspired to and her sister Edie went to Cambridge and and got, um, you know, blues and sports and got a first in, in her course there. So, you know, Dorothy would have probably been looking at various colleges, but I think she couldn't decide. So she did entrance exams for art colleges and she got in and she used to spend a lot of time in museums and art galleries sketching. She was also interested in the notion of helping people so eventually she went down the path of becoming a Lady Almoner which is essentially a social worker today Um, but this didn't really I think satisfy her fully intellectually and eventually then she kind of started to move towards medicine but she was 25 when she enrolled as a first year in Trinity
0: and she enrolled at a time when uh, England and Ireland were on the cusp of this great tumult you had the home rule crisis the growing controversy over whether or not uh, Ireland was uh, going to be able to uh be self-governing within the British Empire and as you write her family was at the was very deeply involved in uh a lot of the uh you know movements towards Irish nationalism.
1: That's right. Yeah. Her aunt Alice um Alice Stockford Green was a historian and she was also what they called a high nationalist. So somebody who would have been in favour of home rule and would have been very interested in Ireland's social and cultural history um, but possibly wouldn't have gone as far as thinking that she really wanted an independent Ireland at that particular time. You know, later she becomes um, a senator in the Irish Free State but at, at the time she was certainly you know, as they called a high nationalist, and she was involved in planning gun running into Hoth in 1914. Now, she was seen as something of a maverick in the family, although her other brother, um, Ned, Alice's brother Ned, was also, you know, some form of a nationalist. The rest of the family, and particularly Dorothy's parents, were not interested in this, and they just saw this as some kind of a form of eccentricity. And Dorothy says, <laughs> she herself and her sisters, you know, when they were in school, they were not particularly interested in politics. So they weren't particularly interested in suffragism, even though some of their teachers were, and they weren't really interested in nationalism, even though their their great aunt clearly, or their aunt clearly was, you know, so I mean, Dorothy's introduction to nationalism didn't come about until after the 1916 rising, and in fact, even you know, the 1916 Rising, she spent it right inside the centre of the British administration. She was invited by Sir Matthew Nathan, who was the secretary to Ireland to to spend her first summer, her first Easter holidays, you know, while she was a medical student in the Phoenix Park. So she was right at the centre of what was happening, you know, from the British point of view during the 1916 Rising, and Mm -hmm. then she changed her mind afterwards.
0: The other major event that took place when she was beginning her medical education, of course, was the First World War. And you talk about in your book about how the uh, Trinity College at the time was uh, underwent this considerable uh, tumult because of the war in terms of uh, students leaving, uh, instructors leaving. What was that uh, educational environment like? For her.
1: Well, I think it made a space for women because um, Trinity only opened its doors to women in 1904, so it was one of the last Irish colleges to do so. So even though women could study medicine in Ireland from the late 1800s. If you were um, Protestant, as Dorothy was, you would probably have had to attend the Catholic um you know, university school rather than Trinity, which we You would have seen as your more natural constituency. So women weren't all that common there. Women, in many ways, weren't all that welcome. You know, mm-hmm. so when there was, um, you know, fewer applications from men because and, and a lot of students left for a period of time, there was a, a vacuum that needed to be filled up, and there were fees that needed to be paid. So I suppose, in 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 some kind of a way, it did create a space for women in. The the same way that, that women were able to move into you know employment and, and different positions while the men were all out on the front you know and then from Dorothy's point of view the war was very close to her as well because her brother Robert who was meant to enter Cambridge that year instead joined an Anglo-Belgian ambulance unit and went to Dunkirk and then went to Ypres so in his letters they were hearing at first hand like the horrors of that war.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, we should probably uh, uh, clarify for uh, some of our listeners is just how important Trinity College was, because it really has this uh, very uh, prominent place and also, uh, to some degree, a, a very uh, tense place in, in Irish education. It's, it's a very uh, prestigious uh, academic institution, but it's one in which, as with so many other things, especially at that time, you have this uh you had this uh, religious tension uh, with its role in Ireland in general.
1: That's right. I mean Trinity would have had a highly respected school of physic. you know, the medical school, it went back centuries, it was associated with people like you know, Robert Graves, it had a very very high reputation, but it was also um, strongly associated with um, the Protestant faith. And even though It was open to both faiths. You know, while Doherty was there, was probably 80% Protestant. The Catholic Church did not want um, its members attending the university. And even up until the 1940s and even the early 1950s, the Catholic Church would have strongly discouraged its members from attending Trinity. And you would have had to have come up with some, you know, very particular reason as to why you had to go to a Protestant college.
0: But that I mean, was, now
1: I think that a lot of that, you know, even though their their tradition would be, you know, perhaps more Protestant than other colleges, it's certainly much more um, inclusive now, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned that she was uh, in the heart of the British administration uh, during the Easter Rising, and uh, you have some uh, very... Uh, you know, choice quotes from her correspondence as to how she would occasionally envision, uh, you know, seeing, you know, a a possible, uh, you know, participant, uh, you know, in the field, it turned out to be a little girl. Uh, How did the uh, rising uh, affect her?
1: okay well essentially she was looking forward to Easter 1916 since going to be her first holidays from medical school her brain was clogged she said with chemistry and basic sciences she wanted to forget it all and be frivolous and the person she really wanted to be frivolous with and to flirt with was Sir Matthew Nathan um, who was the British Undersecretary and he had invited her on what would be a very proper visit in some ways to the Undersecretary's Lodge in the Phoenix Park because he'd also invited um, his sister in law and his two nieces along to chaperone Doherty essentially. So clearly he he was um, a womaniser he was a very very attractive man and has been described as incredibly charming but his intentions towards Doherty seemed to have been very proper in that he made sure that she wasn't on her own with him at the lodge. So for Doherty 1916 was going to be a fun time and that's what she thought but um, instead of which Matthew ended up in Dublin Castle, um, which was the centre of the British administration where he worked. He was there throughout most of uh, Easter weekend, and then the rising started on Easter Monday. He got locked into the castle and then she has this kind of very personal take on it. So things like who knew that Sir Matthew was suffering from a cold, who knew that he was left there with no clothes and they were trying to get a suitcase into him. So it sort of humanizes these people that we hear about, you know, just on a, a sort of a political front. Mm-hmm. You know, so for her, then, of course, it was frightening. They were worried that they might be a target. You know, the Nationalists might actually attack them. They might attack the um, Vice Regal Lodge, which was very close to them. And that was, that's now Arthur Oogstron, where the Irish president lives. And most Irish people would know where that is in the middle of the Phoenix Park. The Undersecretary's Lodge was quite close to that. So, There would have been a lot of worries and then as the week went on they couldn't get food and people didn't want to supply them with food so they had Mm. to get their kind of Catholic maids to go out and see what they could forage from the shops, you know, without saying who it was for. And the gas supply started to go down. So in the evenings, you know, they would have had very dim lighting and then it was very difficult to cook because there was uh, no gas supply and they were hearing a lot of kind of bangs and noises and gunfire and things like that. But she was far enough from the city centre that she wouldn't have seen any direct action. And even though she describes a number of events, like one of them that you mentioned, where she thinks she's seen, say, Sinn Féiners, you know, crouched down in the grass, she's actually just seeing, you know, a little girl one time picking flowers and another time she's seeing a worker leaning on a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have any direct kind of, she didn't see anything directly, but she did hear an awful lot about what was going on.
0: So it was a very uh, dramatic experience for her, but it was one that was not a sudden radicalizing moment for her.
1: No, it didn't appear to be. I mean, she left there. She was worried about Sir Matthew. Um, she was wondering what she'd do. She went to stay with her cousin in Dublin. Um, she was hoping that Sir Matthew would be safe. And then afterwards, as events begin to unfold, what happens is that there are summary executions of a lot of the leaders of the Rising in Kilmainham Jail in the Stonebreakers' yard. And these um, appear to be particularly brutal Um one of the leaders is supposedly strapped to a chair or strapped to a stretcher and he can't walk and he's shot and so on. So um, a lot of people become radicalised in the aftermath of the Rising and in how the British administration cracked down on the Irish rebels as opposed to because of, you know, during the Rising itself. Mm -hmm. And at this stage as well, Sir Matthew has had to fall on his sword and resign because as one of the two people at the wheel himself and Augustine Beryl, the, the chief secretary, also has to resign because they would should have seen this coming, you know, and they should have they should have maybe been able to clamp down on it before it took hold. So I think for Dorothy, her radicalising is about what the British administration did afterwards to their prisoners as opposed to what happened during that week itself.
0: Now at this point though, she has to start walking a very fine line because she's still continuing her uh, education in an institution that is associated with the uh, with the British uh, historically, and with a lot of people who represent this, uh, this establishment, which is associated with the British.
1: That's right, so she joins um coming them on, the on the auxiliary for the i r a and as a doctor she 's going to be very useful to them because she can do up crib sheets you know she can go first aid, she can tell them how to say distinguish between entry and exit room for bullets, she can tell them about disinfection, she can tell them about um how to to stop blood, you know this kind of stuff so. Um, obviously very useful and they ask her before she graduates will she go down to Kilbritton in West Cork and will she give first aid lectures to the IRA down there and also will she um, give first aid lectures to come in the on and she agrees to do so but she is very worried that she, if she's arrested she won't be allowed to graduate but she does go down and she does give the lectures and as you say her accent marks her out and she's also a slight um, woman and mm-hmm. female doctors are very few at this time so there are doubts about whether you know she will be fit as they said to doctor the ira so she tells them about using tourniquets to stop blood flow and one of the very well muscled men down, young men down there says to her you know off his shirt and he flexes his biceps and says now stop the blood and that <laughs> and she does <laughs> you know, She uses, basically she uses a pencil to turn a tourniquet okay and stops the blood flow and from then on they start to take note of her and for from you know her point of view it's, it's quite eye-opening as well because the the lads as, they, as she keeps calling them are all sleeping together in lofts and I've been down and seen the loft that Tom Barry's flying column actually um, slept in and it's very low very small and if there were 20 men there they were all on top of each other basically and they were had problems basically about personal hygiene and things like scabies and what I was down in Kilbritten somebody said to me they used to call that the Republican itch <laughs> 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 so Dorothy basically went back to Dublin to the headquarters of Cumberland and said they they need you know powders and they need information on on how to keep themselves clean and how to disinfect things and so on rather than um, you know sort of the more heroic type interventions that you would think they would need particularly at that stage because they're only starting up and starting to go on the run and whatever but she doesn't get discovered and she does manage to graduate and she's delighted with herself in 1921 with her medical degree but at that stage Ireland is producing too many doctors And as a woman, she would have been disadvantaged as well. But in any case, even if you were a man, you would probably have had to go abroad for experience. But she knew that there was um, a dispensary job available down in Kilberton in West Cork, because the last incumbent had basically been run out of it, as they said, in his in his slippers. And nobody wanted to take up a job in that district, which really was a kind of a hotbed of activity, of Republican activity at that stage. So she went back down there and started to work on her own. She said it was quite daunting. She was very young. This was her first job. And here she was heading up the dispensary.
0: you. What you describe is very dramatic about she uh, is basically riding around unescorted uh, on a trap and she is doing what we would call house calls. And yet at the same time, she's also uh, participating, providing uh, medical aid for uh, members of the Irish uh, Republican Army right under the nose of the British authorities.
1: That's right. And I mean, she, she um, says initially she thought she'd get a motorbike and then she decides she'll get a bicycle. But she has to apply for a permit and the British authorities refuse her a permit. And she can't believe this. So she writes off to the House of Commons and everywhere else. But nothing really happens. And the IRA actually supply her with a pony and a saddle. And she says at this stage she, she doesn't ride very well and she keeps falling off but people keep popping her back up on it so she's (laughs) basically riding around in a pair of trousers because this is the handiest thing but she keeps a skirt in her saddlebag she's wearing a red jumper a lot of the time she's very obvious you know and as you say she does um provide first aid to the ira so for instance when they set fire to a local coast guard station one of the volunteers burns himself as well and he has quite severe facial burns and she has to go and tend to him. But this means riding on horseback across fields and behind ditches and trying to stay undercover. So it can take a full afternoon just just to get to him and to tend to him and get back. And she is under suspicion. That's why she's been refused the, the bicycle permit. Mm-hmm. And she is raided on a number of occasions where the British come into her house and her dispensary and they look through her correspondence, but she's never actually caught with anything incriminating.
0: And she does all that in addition to developing a regular practice. So she's not just a full-time doctor for the IRA. She's doing that in addition to visiting regular patients and tending to the needs of people in West Cork.
1: That's it. She's actually her, the way she's making her money is by 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 running the dispensary and having some private patients, and she also helps out giving anaesthetics in Bandon, the local town. So, and she does need to 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 earn her living, and in the beginning, money is quite tight, and her mother is sending her over some money, and she's also sending her over things like blankets and towels and so on. Um, but then, as she builds up her practice, she she does start to make money, and she's she she. she and um, you know is able to expand professionally and so on so her work for the ira as far as i can make out there is no payment except when um it comes to the end of the war of independence and the end of the the civil war the the ira gives her a gold watch as a thank you present mm. but um it's it's unpaid and and difficult and and dangerous and it's also bloody and some of the um things that she has to deal with are questionable, you know, and mm-hmm. some of the deeds on both sides of the conflict it must have been very difficult for her to, to, to deal with, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, she says she didn't take sides um, from a medical point of view and that she was as happy to treat, you know, one of the British as she was to treat one of the nationalists, but certainly she was supporting um, a violent struggle, you know,
0: and as you point out, that participation in the War of Independence uh, contributed or, 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 or helped determine her allegiance in the subsequent Civil War that takes place uh, once the Irish Free State is established.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. Once the Irish, it's, yeah, she she um, is a Republican, and basically, it, I think it's because. The the West Cork IRA Brigade that she's with are almost 100% Republican, and that's where her allegiances lie. So she's opposed to the treaty. She's opposed to the formation of the free state and the fact that Northern Ireland is not.
0: Which, to clarify, uh, it's not complete independence, and under the treaty, Northern Ireland is separated. So for a lot of uh, committed Republicans who were... Fighting for and and, 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 uh, you know, a united Ireland completely free from British rule, they felt that it, the, uh, treaty didn't go far enough.
1: That's right. So she, she, she is anti-treaty and then she reports, she supports the Republican side and later she supports um, De Valera and Fianna Fáil when it becomes formed. And that remains her sort of political standpoint for the rest of her life. But her family kind of go a little bit otherwise. Her sister Evie and her Aunt Alice are both happy to support the Free State. And as I mentioned earlier, her Aunt Alice becomes one of the first senators in the Irish Free State. And her husband-to-be, Liam Price, is also um, a strong supporter of the Free State and becomes a district justice. So he's, he's, he's very strongly aligned with the new Free State. But they seem to be able to set their differences aside. And in fact, with her marriage, the split that occurred in the family with the Civil War, as it occurred in many families and between, also between communities and so on, for the Stockfords, it seemed to heal when she marries Liam Price.
0: I was wondering if you could go back a bit and and talk about that point in her life that at, once the the Civil War comes to an end, you mentioned that she is is finding that that uh, a life in Cork is not what she uh, envisions, and 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 how it is that she comes back to Dublin and how she uh, how Dorothy Stafford meets uh, Liam Price and, and 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 how they eventually and the uh, marriage they eventually establish.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, when they, when when they, the 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 civil war ended, I think Dorothy found it very flat down in West Cork. Kilbritton is a very small village, so she would have been seeing. Um, sort of your standard rural type patients that a general practitioner would see. There would be no possibility of specialization. There would be no possibility of advancement. And also from the point of view of what we now call Say continuous professional development it would have been very difficult for her because she was a long way from any college. Journals were extremely expensive to subscribe to, of course, they were all print at that time. You know, there was no internet, there was, you know, barely a telephone network as such. So, for her to move on from becoming a rural dispensary doctor, she needed to get out of West Cork. And I think for herself personally at that stage, She um, was finding it a little bit socially and culturally confining, even though she made fantastic friends in Kilbritton and she remained friends with those people all of her life. I think it was simply time for her to move herself on professionally. So she gets a job. um, Initially, it's temporary and then it becomes permanent in St. Ulton's Hospital in Dublin. And St. Ulton's is a kind of remarkable institution. It was set up in 1919 by Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine French Mullen and Kathleen both of them were directly involved in the 1916 Rising. Both of these women were jailed afterwards. Kathleen Lynn was a a suffragette, a socialist, a nationalist and then she sets up this hospital and it's an infant's hospital. It's very unusual in that there were hospital, other hospitals in Ireland that have been set up by women, mainly by um, religious women, in fact, and religious orders. But they tended to be women controlling the nursing side and perhaps controlling the administration. But here there was a medical board that was solely women, and all of the doctors were women, unless they had to call in a male specialist from elsewhere. All of the nurses were women, and... They, in the beginning, were able to practice positive discrimination before the legislation stopped them. So they could do that thing of putting in an ad saying woman preferred when they were advertising for a doctor. So Dorothy was moving to a very radical environment. These were very politicized women that were running this hospital. And for her, because they were very outward looking, it, it, it worked really well.
0: At, At the, the same, same time, time... Go ahead. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead.
1: I, Okay, I was just going to say at the same time, she she was still meeting people that she had met through nationalism and she was always very interested in the outdoors and hiking and so on. So she meets um, Liam Price, who was a friend of Dermot Coffey, who had been engaged a friend of, of Doherty's, but who had sadly died during the Spanish flu which followed World War One. So Liam Price is part of that kind of circle of people. He was originally William Price. He was from almost the same kind of background as, as Doherty, Anglo-Irish. He was a British Army um, soldier during um the 1916 rising he was associated with the pay corps in cork but got stranded in dublin and offered his services to dublin castle and then later he converts and becomes um a nationalist and a free stater but in the beginning it's the love of the outdoors that seems to bring them together and he proposed to her in the Wicklow mountains
0: so they get married and uh they're unable to have children, so they instead focus upon their interest. Uh, uh, Liam Price is a uh, avid antiquarian. I, I love that that uh, that that line that you have. I can't remember if it's a quote or, or yours about how he seems to be a professional antiquarian who his hobby is the law.
1: <laughs> yes, I know. I'm quoting somebody else on that, and I can't exactly remember whom now. But but it sounds very accurate. <laughs> and he wrote absolutely. Copious amounts on the place names of Wicklow and his um, notebooks on those place names have all been um, edited and published now. And he became president of the Irish Society of Antiquarians. So yes, he was. He was. That was that was his big interest. And then Dorothy, of course, starts to focus on medicine very seriously. And in the beginning, she's always interested in research and trying new things, but um, she's not. You know, it's not. It's not instant attraction to tuberculosis but by the early 1930s she has kind of started to specialize in tuberculosis and she goes to Schiedic in um, Bavaria and she does a short postgraduate course there and she starts to look at how the continent diagnoses and prevents tuberculosis and it's quite different to the British and Irish approach. And traditionally, at this time, Irish medicine was always looking to Britain for a lead, like reading their journals, following on in their practices and whatever. But what St. Dalton's enabled Darty to do was to to look outside all of that. And she taught herself German and to read the German literature and to think differently, you know, about how to look at these diseases.
0: Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, take a step back and and. summarize what tuberculosis was and why it was such a problem in Ireland at that time.
1: Okay, well there was a tuberculosis epidemic in most of Europe in the 19th century, but in most countries It it, it sort of followed a national, uh, sorry, it followed a natural epidemiological curve where it reached kind of a peak and then started to go down for a whole series of complex reasons. And this is usually what happens with epidemics. They burn themselves out. But in Ireland, our epidemic curve, for some reason, didn't. Start to turn down till 1904 which was the first decline in the number of deaths so we had a, a much worse experience of tuberculosis much later than most of Europe and it seemed to be associated largely with our urban slum dwellings. And at this stage, Dublin, in particular, um, an awful lot of the what were originally beautiful, gracious Georgian houses that housed a single family and their servants had become tenements, and they might have 40 families in them. They might be sharing one privy at the back in a backyard, and maybe one source of water, and. Um, Any disease that was there was going to spread very quickly, but as well as this, there was also a huge amount of malnutrition and poverty. Obviously, these people were in tenements because they were extremely poor. So it seems to have been associated with our particular demography, you know, at the time. So, you know, there were thousands of people essentially dying from tuberculosis in Ireland every year and we weren't quantifying at that stage how many people were sick with it but it was estimated that five to seven people might have been sick for every recorded death and even the numbers of recorded deaths is um, a big underestimate because people would beg doctors not to put tuberculosis on a a death certificate because tuberculosis in a family was a stigma it would affect your marriage um, prospects it would affect your employment prospects And this was even though, you know, we knew from the 1880s from Robert Koch's work in Germany that tuberculosis was spread by a bacterium. There was still this notion that there were tubercular families. Tuberculosis ran in particular families, you know.
0: Mm -hmm. So she uh, is, it's a disease that she has had some degree of experience with, but it, it really is in the 1930s that she becomes more and more interested in addressing it. And as you mentioned, it's when she goes to, uh, uh, Europe that she begins to, uh, learn more about how, uh, in, in, in uh, Germany, in, in Austria and in Scandinavia, how the professionals there are treating it. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to, uh, the, uh, in, the experiments they were doing with vaccines, and and some of the and one of the re, and some of the reasons why those vaccines were very controversial.
1: Yeah, well, in 1921, a preventive vaccine against tuberculosis, BCG, Bacillus calme guerin was developed in France, and it was initially given orally to children, and then it was taken up in a number of neighboring countries. And in Germany, there was um a huge tragedy with the vaccine, and seventy two children died, and this was known as the Lubeck disaster, um, you know after the area that it occurred. And in fact, it turned out later on that what had happened was that culture plates growing actual tuberculosis bacteria, so mycobacterium tuberculosis had been mixed up with plates growing the attenuated strain, the BCG strain. So these children were actually given TB as opposed to given a TB vaccine. But the whole thing became very confused and BCG got quite a bad name out of this disaster. And then the Norwegians and the Swiss began to use the vaccine um, intradermally instead of orally. So they were basically injecting it in and they started to get very good results. So there was a lot of kind of politics around the vaccine as well. Cal May was not a good statistician, to put it mildly. (laughs) um, He lost patients during his experiments and maybe they got found again or maybe they didn't. And you know what I mean? And even though from his gross numbers, it was obvious the vaccine was working. It was very easy to pull apart what he was doing. So there was a major Greenwood in in England who duly did so. And um, England never um really engaged with the the BCG vaccine till till the 1950s on the grounds that you know this was statistically flawed which it was and there was also a certain element of nationalism and it's called the french vaccine quite a lot you know
0: mm-hmm. and
1: later um it it it's it further kind of politicized like it's it's very odd you think you know i always used to think the reason that we use this is based on the science, but a lot of the time it's not, you know. So in, in Norway during World War II, because the, the Germans forbade use of the, of the vaccine, it became a symbol of resistance to give the vaccine, you know. So there's all this kind of complicated background stuff going on. And BCG does not give 100% immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Dorothy Dar- 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 El- knew this. But she, she also knew that in a population like Ireland, the vaccine could be very useful because we did have this very strange epidemiology where we have, you know, urban centres with very high rates of disease and rural areas where, yes, there is some disease, but a lot of the population up until their teens have not been exposed. So so their tuberculosis is naive. So giving them a vaccine, you have a very good chance of protecting them. So um, hopefully this is making some sense. Oh, it's making great sense. (laughs) Okay, so Uh, basically, Dorothy sees this vaccine, but she has, at that time, a very good knowledge and a developing knowledge of the epidemiology of tuberculosis among Irish children. And she's the first person to have developed this knowledge through using another, um, basically we call it a foreign product, tuberculin, which was um, developed by Robert Koch, but she actually saw tuberculin ointment in use in... um, Vienna in the um, children's clinic there by Professor Hamburger, and she brought back what she called Hamburger's Ointment to Ireland. So she was quite confident that we had a population that this vaccine might be able to do good things with. But she always knew it was not going to be 100% protective, and she always knew that there was a possibility that there could be side effects, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. And you mentioned how her introduction of the vaccine is very gradual, and it's dependent upon among other things, the importation of the vaccine from uh, the continent, that she has to go, uh, she has to obtain uh, uh, the vaccine from uh, Sweden, and how this very gradual use of it is, of course, then completely interrupted by the outbreak of the Second World War.
1: Yeah, in nineteen December nineteen thirty six, Dorothy gets the first licence to experiment with B C G vaccine in Ireland and to give it to infants in St Alton's Hospital. So she gets vaccine in January nineteen thirty seven and it's flown in at this stage from Sweden. And it's labile, it's so it's 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 got a short lifespan, it's um susceptible maybe to, to you know, to different things like temperature changes and so on. And the problem at that stage and we kind of forget you know is that the vaccines and um, not just are label but if you want to roll it out beyond say the the urban centers there may be no refrigeration to 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 keep it and um, syringes are not um the single use syringes that we're used to today a doctor might have one syringe and you know needle and he might dip it into alcohol in between each patient in the hope of sterilizing it and might occasionally take it to the local hospital for it to be autoclaved. So it was all a much, I suppose you could say, dodgier process, (laughs) a much more difficult process. It it, it sounds easy to say, let's roll out a mass vaccine, but it's not quite so easy when you don't have enough needles, you know what I mean, when you're having leakage back from the barrels, all the sort of practical problems that she keeps showing up when when, when you can't contact people because they don't have telephones. You know, so, um, yes. So so anyway, she starts off in Dublin and she vaccinates some infants. um, And then in 1939, of course, we get the outbreak of the Second World War. Ireland is neutral and um, we call it the emergency here. But we do start to run short of things. So things like cod liver oil, which was a good source of vitamin D, start to become unavailable. Certain medicines, certain ointments, and the vaccine BCG becomes unavailable to Darcy till the end of the Second
0: World War. She even has to uh, basically figure out how to make hamburgers ointment, so she can't even test for TB uh, once she runs out of what she's been importing.
1: That's right, and, and I mean she she certainly was an amazing person in that undaunted. She decides I'm going to make this ointment. <laughs> now, she did know her limitations. She didn't try and make the vaccine, but she did make this ointment. And in fact, she started to supply it to lots of other doctors to use it. And it's used in um, a particular trial in um, an industrial school in Dublin, and it's used on the Iron Islands, and other trials and so on. So um, the government is essentially giving it a seal of approval as well
0: but as you mentioned even though the vaccine is no longer available she's during the war she's or during the emergency she's still uh campaigning to uh you know to to make the tuberculosis uh you know uh, epidemic a, a national concern. And, and you describe how in 1942 she tries to form this National Anti-Tuberculosis League. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit about, you know, what happened there and, and, and some of the complications about how her efforts were not necessarily ones in which she had 100% support and how there were lots of obstacles she had to overcome and not always successfully.
1: That's right, yeah. In 1942, she tried to put together a National Anti-Tuberculosis League, and Ireland was unusual at this stage in that we didn't have one. So up until independence, the British um, NAPT, their, their National Association for the Prevention of Tuberculosis, was operating in Ireland, and there was also a Women's National Health Association, and that was campaigning against TB as well. But essentially, when the British involvement dies, no Irish league is started, and then Doherty eventually decides, "Listen, we've got to get this going because it, you know what the leagues are doing is they are publicising the need to do something. They're acting as as um, lobbyists and pressure groups, you know, trying to persuade the government to take more action. They're also collecting money, they're supporting research, and they're they're, they're pooling expertise and so on. So it seems like a good idea. So she gets together initially." a small group of doctors and then she expands and gets medical professors. She starts to ask people from industry, key people in society that she thinks will be interested and she goes as far as inviting the um, Arch- Catholic and the Protestant Archbishops of Dublin. And the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin is kind of a legend to almost all Irish people, Archbishop um, John Charles McQuaid. Mm -hmm. He was a man who basically controlled, a very able man, an administrator who basically controlled his flock with um, an iron fist. And he had a huge network of people that reported back to him on what was going on everywhere. So one of the people that Doherty had recruited into her league does tell John Charles McQuaid what's happening because it's a matter of course to him that everything he does he passes on to his archbishop. Now to us today it seems kind of you know ridiculous but that was that was how it went. So he tells them and they're actually quite happy because he writes back to them and he, he seems to be in a sort of a vague way saying it's fine but not he doesn't actually put the words like such. But when they decide to go public and have um, a meeting in February 1942, he doesn't go to the meeting. Instead of that, he sends along his representative and the senior Maloney. And before the meeting can start, and this is a meeting of a couple of hundred people who would be professionals, you know, medical consultants, heads of industry, heads of unions and so on. And he basically stands up and says, the Archbishop's considered opinion, that a national anti-tuberculosis league such as this one should not be used to tackle tuberculosis. He does agree there's a tuberculosis problem. And again, to us today, it's very difficult to imagine. But there's a bit of muttering and so on, but everybody basically accepts the Catholic Archbishop has said no, so so it's no. And um, what he wants is he wants the Irish Red Cross, which is under Catholic control at that stage, to take over the national anti-tuberculosis league. Um, league to take over that function. He doesn't want it to be seen that a Protestant doctor, Doherty Stopford Price, and a Protestant professor, Robert Rowlett, who is associated with Trinity and who Doherty had asked to chair the league, are basically spearheading a massive public campaign to tackle tuberculosis. And he already has history with St. Dalton's because he has stopped them amalgamating with another hospital to form a National Children's Hospital. He has history with Robert Rowlett, who um, supported the introduction of contraceptives in Ireland. He has history with um, Doherty herself. So basically, he wants to stop them in in their tracks, and he does. And Doherty is deeply disappointed, and she writes lots and lots of letters which are still among her papers saying she cannot believe how this national tuberculosis league has been torpedoed and so on and now they're going to get something that she considers will be much more dilute in effect and it turns out that she's correct in that because the Irish Red Cross does take up the cause it does start out with a very large unwieldy committee it's no longer what Dorothy wanted which was doctor-led and while it starts out doing some survey work and so on it gradually kind of um moves towards being a propaganda function only and then it kind of eventually peters out completely
0: but by that time the war was over and she's able to uh resume the importation of the vaccine and by that point it seems that she is also benefiting from a much uh more uh uh, well-networked international environment.
1: That's right. That's right. At, th- at that stage, um, she be- she's asked um, in the late 1940s to become the World Health Organization's um, corresponding member for Ireland. She is very well linked in to um, some of the British networks, and she's very well linked in to Norwegian and um swiss and and danish networks so she 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 knows what's going on but what happens then for her is that the irish government changes we get our first um coalition government and a very young new minister for health noel brown who is iconic in mm-hmm. in ireland and who many people will credit with ending the tuberculosis epidemic himself but what he did do was he recognised um, Dorothy's expertise and he appointed her as chair of a National Tuberculosis um, Consultative Council. That gave her freedom to establish a national BCG um, committee and that gave her freedom to start um, rolling out a mass vaccination campaign. Now Noel Brown did, did, did do other things as well, but he was his brief ministry for health, he was only there for a couple of years, Provided Darcy, um with valuable, I suppose, political space in which she could maneuver effectively.
0: And yet just on the cusp of seeing this campaign rolling out, she suffers uh, a, a stroke that uh, effectively ends her ability to be uh, in charge of uh, a lot of this effort.
1: That's right. It's kind of ironic really. She achieves this. She becomes, you know, chairperson of the, the National BCG Committee. She's getting things her way. She has she's making um some quite dogmatic decisions and I, I think at this stage maybe a couple of mistaken decisions. But again, maybe a product of her time. She didn't want nurses to vaccinate. She only wanted doctors to vaccinate when she'd personally trained them. She um wants the national bcg committee to sit outside the um, health service instead of integrating it into it and she basically wants control and unfortunately when she gets control she does suffer a stroke yeah. and while she can act in an advisory committee from then on and she does continue to pull some strings behind the scenes she she is quite quite ill and it becomes uh, somebody else's campaign i suppose at that stage yeah y- you
0: suggest I suppose the other thing is Sorry. I was going to say, you suggest that 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 a lot of those struggles, those bureaucratic struggles, had the effect of of really wearing her down prior to the stroke.
1: It seems that you know she would do a full day work as a doctor and then she might do a full night's work trying to um, put together these various notions that she had about, you know, BCG and tuberculosis and schemes and sitting on committees and so on. So she did seem to wear herself out. Now, the other thing is um, she did smoke and she did chain smoke because mm-hmm. her great nieces tell me that they remember her and watching the ash kind of growing on the cigarette and waiting <laughs> for it to fall out of her hand. And she didn't give up smoking after the, after the stroke. So. So that may have been some made some contribution as well, and so the other thing I was going to say was that just as you know, ironically again, timing just as the, the national BCG committee is 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 ramping up in Ireland, antibiotics start to become available. So there's a, so there's treatment for this previously untreatable disease so so we get all these interventions coming together we get preventive campaigns we're able to treat it we, we are able to effectively contact trace because we're using tubercle much more widely we have enough x-ray equipment after the second world war our public health service starts to ramp up we have lots of um start to get lots more hospital beds and lots more sanatoria beds which i know they're um it's debatable how much they contributed to um the decrease in the disease but but that they were being made, they were there. There were um, allowances being paid to people when they had tuberculosis, and they were out so that they could support their families and they could take time off to rest. And everybody does seem to agree that rest was important as well. So all of these interventions are coming in. And she didn't live to see the end of the tuberculosis epidemic in Ireland, which was kind of the late 1950s. Only a couple of years after she died in 1954, but she did see the beginning of the end.
0: I, I, I felt that that was. It was was tragic that she didn't live to see that. And I thought that tragedy was uh, punctuated by your uh, photograph selection. At the end of the book, in in the photograph section, your last two photographs are of nuns being inoculated and uh, nurses being given the vaccine. And both of those photographs, which are of the success of her campaign, are dated after her death.
1: That's right, that's right. I just love that photograph, I have to say, of the nuns been vaccinated. I think it's captioned teacher training or teachers been um, vaccinated and they're all all nuns, which said a lot about Ireland at the time. Mm -hmm. And they look frankly, thrilled to be out. No,
0: <laughs> it, 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 know, they're all
1: lining up with, with grins on their faces saying, stick that needle in my arm, please.
0: <laughs> I have to apologize. it was It was tuberculin testing, not not the vaccine. Not the, uh, uh, yes, the it, it was, you're right. It was tuberculin testing. So. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so they, they do see, it, it is a very interesting picture to see all the, the nuns in their full habits, you know. Being in the tested. full, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I suppose they did wear those full habits up until, just until before I left secondary school, 1970s. They, they were still wearing those full habits, a lot of them in Ireland. So well, they're the teachers I would have recognized.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Okay, well, I'm just finished um, working on a project where we were looking at the history of um, Cavan Monaghan District Asylum, which was um, catered for psychiatric patients in counties Cavan and Monaghan and um, was founded in the 1860s and we were given, myself and some colleagues were given full access to their archives, and we've just um, put together a book called World Within Walls, which is a history of St. David's from when it was founded until um, the present day. And now for something totally different, because I'm teaching the medical device design, I'm I'm kind of becoming more and more interested in material culture and the devices themselves. So I'm starting to look at um, stethoscopes and the Irish connection. And just to briefly say that um, the bioral stethoscope was invented by an Irishman, Arthur Lirid, who displayed it at the Great Exhibition in London. And very quickly afterwards, then, um, the Americans produced more commercial models. So I don't think he made anything out of that. (laughs) But um, the other Irish connection, interestingly, is Dorothy's grandfather, Avery Kennedy, who was a master of the Rotunda Hospital. And he was a huge advocate of using the stethoscope in obstetrical practice. And when he was practicing in the 1800s, the early 1800s, it was very difficult to be certain if a woman was pregnant or not. And they started using the stethoscope to see if they could hear the fetal heart. And uh, he has written a book, which is actually freely available online through the um, Internet Archive, about obstetric auscultation and it's it's fascinating it's full of these amazing case histories of you know when they couldn't decide when somebody was pregnant and then he takes out this instrument and he's able to tell so that's where i'm going at the moment
0: it sounds fascinating well uh, dr mcclellan thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us and i hope you have a wonderful day
1: thank you